ready to create the impactful and profitable business you've been dreaming of? It's all possible. We've done it ourselves after leaving careers in law and clinical practice. Like many other professional women, we wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present to our growing families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other ambitious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And this is the Soulful MBA Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. We love audiobooks and we suspect that you do too. Because you're a Soulful MBA listener, you can get an audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial over at audibletrial.com slash soulfulmba. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash soulfulmba for your free audiobook. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Soulful MBA podcast, episode 94, Quitting Social Media. I'm Jenny Barcelos, and I'm joined with my co-host, Sandy Connery. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Jenny. We've got a heavy topic this week. We do. And spoiler alert, we're not quitting social media. But we thought the title of this episode was a little bit provocative. And we are certainly feeling quite critical about social. And so today's episode is largely inspired by the Jaron Lanier book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now which we've referenced before in an Audible ad, but we've not actually had a real conversation about this book. And I think more than any other topic we've ever discussed, this topic warrants an entire Soulful MBA podcast episode. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And full disclosure here, you have listened to the audiobook and read the actual print book, and I am about halfway through the audiobook. So I actually haven't finished this book, and we're going to talk about all these reasons. So I feel a bit, feel a bit guilty about that, but we're going to run with it. Don't feel bad about it. I actually didn't fi- finish the audiobook because it was atrocious to listen to, and I ordered the hard copy of the book instead, which was really easy to go through. It was really like a manifesto. It's short. It's just over 100 pages. I highly recommend if you're concerned about the role of technology in our culture, if you have kids, if you're operating a business on the internet, I highly recommend that you get a copy of this book in your hands in some way because it's really worthwhile. The audiobook is not read by Jaron Lanier. And, you know, I have a hard time with nonfiction books that are not read by the author. But it's not even that. Even if Jaron did read it, it's like there's so many acronyms and references to things that he talked about earlier that I'm finding it very hard to follow. So I think because you want to just go back and like sort of reread that phrase, go, what is he saying? And think about it and look back. And I just can't do that on the audio. So anyway, point is buy the physical book on this one. Yeah, or go to the library. Okay, so let's just run through the 10 arguments. And then I also wanted to bring up another piece that... I read on Medium called The Cognition Crisis, which I think is also related to this topic. So this is not really about social media. I think, like I said, the idea of quitting social media is a provocative topic. But really, what Jaron Lanier is talking about in this book 
are also things like Google and I mean, Facebook, which is social media, but it's not just like social media apps on your phone. Like this is fundamentally the way we interact on the internet and why we should be questioning some of the practices that we as a culture have kind of universally adopted and normalized. So the 10 arguments that Jaron lays out are argument one, you are losing your free will. Argument two, quitting social media is the most finely targeted way to resist the insanity of our times. Argument three, social media is turning you into an a-hole. Argument four, social media is undermining truth. Argument five, social media is making what you say meaningless. Argument six, social media is destroying your capacity for empathy. That's one of the ones I want to tease out a little bit more in this conversation. Argument seven, social media is making you unhappy. Argument eight, social media doesn't want you to have economic dignity. Another one I want to tease out. Argument nine, social media is making politics impossible. I think we've all seen that come into play. And argument 10, social media hates your soul, which is the final one that I really want to tease out in this conversation. Because I I think these are the ones that I want to kind of bring out in conversation today, Sandy, are the the ideas that are maybe not as as common, like we all know that social media has interfered with politics in a major way. Just look at the the last U.S. presidential election, right? Like that's an, a major topic of conversation in our culture. Um, and we all know that social media, well, we've talked about this before, at least. I think a lot of people know that social media leads to unhappiness, that that's more of a common critique. But some of these other things like social media hating your soul (laughs) is not talked about. And I think destroying our capacity for empathy is not talked about enough either. And so I want to dig a little bit deeper into some of those issues. Okay, let's start with empathy. Tell us the argument. Make me want to quit social media. What is the argument for empathy? Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about this filter bubble idea that was popularized by Eli Pariser. He had a book on this topic and a a famous TED Talk. Eli is most famous for starting the organization MoveOn.org. And he basically, Jaron Lanier is saying the same thing, which is that when we're absorbing content that is algorithmically optimized for us alone, we're not seeing a lot of the same things that other people who don't agree with us are seeing and being presented with. And it's almost impossible as a human being to or empathize with someone when you don't understand the context in which they're experiencing their worldview. So because we're fed a constant stream of information that's been filtered and optimized for our own interests and buying behaviors, we're not seeing the kinds of memes and articles that others are seeing. So when we see someone who doesn't have the same beliefs as us, acting out politically or saying something publicly that we don't agree with, we don't understand the context in which they're saying that thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when we all read newspapers, and that's where we got our news from, we were all basically seeing the same articles, although there could be a slant like and that it happens to me more in the United States where there's, you know, like Fox or whatever, is more Republican. Like there's still news stations and and other traditional news outlet news outlets that lean a certain way politically, right? So you are sort of seeing that to some degree in traditional news. Well, that's not traditional. I would argue that like cable news is not traditional news, but like when everyone was getting the same newspaper in town every day in 1955, I think we were all seeing as a culture seeing the same information and then people could agree or disagree and make up their own minds, make up their own minds. And everyone was sort of universally presented with one set of criteria and then they would have their own opinions. And with the advent of cable news and the internet, that's not how it works. In fact, that's so interesting that you bring that up, Sandy, because I was reading news online 
yesterday and I saw a headline about my president hashtag not my president (laughs) who like someone had turned on cnn on air force one and he became infuriated and there was like there were members of the press corps on on the plane right and so they're writing a story about the president becoming infuriated because there's of like Obviously, there's coverage about him on CNN, and it wasn't, I'm sure, in a favorable light. And so, like, these are the kinds of things where this this causes a person who's of opposing views just to be taking that information, and they become infuriated because it, there's such a dissonance with their worldview and what they're seeing. And Jared Lanier says he has a subsection on this idea in his book on this capacity of empathy issue, and it's called The Lost Theory in Your Brain. And he says, when you can only see how someone else behaves, but not the experiences that influenced their behavior, it becomes harder to have a theory of mind about that person. If you see someone hit someone else, for instance, but you did not see that they did it in defense of a child, you might misinterpret what you see. In the same way, if you don't see the dark ads, the ambient whispers, the cold-hearted memes, and the ridicule-filled customized feed that someone else sees, that person will just seem crazy to you. And he's saying that's our world now, that this is the world we live in where it's so polarizing because we don't have the same context to empathize with that other person. I just heard a story. I read this, an an article somewhere about, it might have been in The New Yorker, where a gentleman uh, grew up in the South. Um, He was from a very established white supremacist family. He wrote on the internet, his name was quite well known. I believe his family even had ties to the KKK many years ago. And he moved to Florida and he went to university there and he somehow they discovered who this guy was. And there was a Jewish family there or Jewish students who, instead of being irate and, you know, backlashing or demanding that he be kicked out or whatever, they invited him over for dinner. And they ended up developing a relationship with the student, and they actually became quite good friends. And this gentleman actually changed his worldview and realized that what his family, like who this Jewish family was lovely and wonderful and not at all what his family had told him about them or others. And it was just this remarkable story of how just a little bit of friendship and a little bit of nice instead of retaliation and fighting back what that can do. So that makes me think of that because he just had never seen the other side or an, a bigger view or a broader view than his small world that his family showed him. That totally reminds me of that memoir that's popular right now called Educated. Have you looked at that book at all? No, no. no. I'm making my way through it and savoring it. I have a hard copy of that one. And it's by Tara Westover. And if you don't know about this memoir, I highly recommend it. It's basically about this woman who was raised by these survivalist parents and sort of kept out of society. And then she went on um, to get a very formal education and I believe to get even a PhD and just how like she went to Harvard and then she went to Cambridge and it's a similar thing like once exposed to the world that everyone else is exposed to I think she got to have a sense of what she had what had been hidden from her right and I think she knew it's a different story because she kind of knew that and wanted to escape from that world but anyway I think that this is just just illustrates how important it is you know the internet uh, Jaron Lanier says the internet was supposed to create transparency in society and ultimately what's happened because of these kinds of algorithms is that it's done just the opposite. Like we have a less transparent society. Like we have a much more opaque society where we, we have blinders on and we only see in tunnel vision. 
Yeah, that's interesting. But it's good to know, right, that that's happening, that we do have a bubble, that our feed is like chosen for us. It is not sort of free will to kind of explore and read what we want. So I don't know. That's what he's saying. Like, just get out of that. Just leave it. Well, he's just saying if if you shut down all of these <laughs> apps that you use that give you this feed and live in your community, right? Like live your life. <laughs> like, and I noticed that too, like to be totally honest, I live in a rural community that's pretty isolated for most of the year. And it's fascinating to me because I have like my internet life where everything is in my bubble and in my worldview. And then I have my like, actual human life and I don't live in a city and I'm exposed to people who have very different existences than I do. And, you know, people who don't ever leave this island, like people, I was at a a fundraiser for one of the schools, like for the public schools here. And some of the teachers were saying that they took kids on a field trip to Seattle and these kids had never seen parking meters before. I mean, I'm around people like that. (laughs) Like their worldviews are quite sheltered. I don't, sheltered is probably not the right word, but But limited, limited. So, I mean, we all have the, like a lot of people have the internet now, but yeah, there's a huge cross-section of people that don't still. And so I think that's really interesting to think about. Okay, so beyond this argument around empathy, one of the other ones that I wanted to talk about is economic dignity. So it's this idea that social media reduces our economic dignity. And it's not, I don't even think this is really about social media. I think this is about technology reducing our economic dignity. And you and I, Sandy, run a technology company that is all about... Full of dignity. Full, like promoting universal access to economic dignity, right? For people who previously didn't have access. And so it's really interesting to me to see where this can go sideways, right? Like the like technology can either be the greatest thing that's ever happened and be the most inclusive thing and the most like economically beneficial and equalizing thing, or it can further concentrate wealth among a few people. And so essentially, Jaron Lanyard's argument here is talking about AI and talking about how like the kinds of things that we as a culture kind of thought machines would do and would automate are actually, it's far more than we expected, I think, as a human species. So we thought like, oh, we're going to have conveyor belts and we're going to have factories and they're going to be machines that like pump things out and box things and package things. And really what pointed, what stood out to me in this chapter of his book was that it's actually create creativity even and like thinking work that's getting automated because of AI. And I hadn't thought about that, I think, enough. Okay. Can you give us an example of what he's saying? Well, he even goes as far as to say that there are algorithms that can create art, right? Like, so even artistic work can be usurped by machine learning and by the machines or these robots, right? That can quickly scan what is aesthetically pleasing and then produce, quote unquote, a work of art that is going to be optimized to be appealing to a certain segment of people. I mean, he's, I'm, I'm like, putting this into my own words very much right now. But it's really interesting because machines can go through and see what's being purchased. What are people liking the most? Like what kind of design is most popular? Like you can build an algorithm to call a bunch of data, right? And machines can learn faster and be more data-driven than the human mind can be, right? On its own. And so he's making this argument that it's actually there are these kinds of careers or this kind of work in the world that we didn't anticipate that machines would be able to do very well. And yet 
people are making machines that are able to do those things. And I think that's terrifying. And he's basically saying that there's going to be cloud-based applications that can do almost anything that a consultant can do or a creative could do that, you know, we're in this race to create create technology products that are supposed to, quote unquote, better society or make money for people, right? That there's something getting lost in this creation process. And we're not looking at the long-term implications of what we're building. Like our minds maybe haven't caught up like to what we're capable of doing or to what the technology is that we're creating. Does that freak you out, Sandy? Well, I guess like with the art example, I, I mean, just, that's really extreme, right? That's the extreme. Art. Sure, sure. But I also think, well, we don't have to buy the art. Or we don't have to like we are make the decisions for ourselves. And if there is AI produced graphic design, we can say, no, I'm going to use Sean Peel or our friend Danielle. Like, you know, like we're going to make decisions about where we spend our money and we can decide not to, if we know it's even happening. Not but that, just, that's a big that's part a of scary, it. <laughs> scary part yeah. is that you don't even know that it's, it, and we've seen it with like the, like the chatbots, Jenny, like we have intentionally not bought into that technology for our own platform. So that if you message us, you know, in app, like, hello, can you explain this for me? It's one of us or our team responding. And we made a very, very conscious decision that we would not participate in that kind of AI. But that technology is getting extremely smart because it can now sort through help documents and find the answer to your question, which on some days, wish we had that installed. But nevertheless, that's what we've decided. This podcast is brought to you by the Namastream software platform. Namastream is an easy-to-use platform that helps you build and sell your own courses, memberships, and live stream programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. You can learn more at namastream.com. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think that the problem, Sandy, is that we're not questioning so often we, as a culture, are not questioning these technologies right. sure. We don't even realize. Yeah. We don't realize it. Yeah. And I remember, you know, when we were in our accelerator and I was meeting with a lot of investors, a lot of investors like fancy themselves as early adopters. And I remember the very one of the investors I was interacting with was using an early beta of an AI virtual assistant to schedule meetings. And it wasn't like a Calendly link. It was like a person's name who would interact right. back and forth. And be I like, remember this. So-and-so yeah. is available for coffee at this place at this time. How would you like to? And I would respond like it was a person. Like you wouldn't know it wasn't a person, like this person's real human assistant. And she's like, oh, you should sign up for this, blah, blah, blah. You can name them. You can like do whatever. And so I signed up on this waiting list for like six months to get early access to this AI chat bot virtual assistant email response responder person. And I got access and I looked at it and I was like, I can't, I don't want to do this. It totally like on some sort of guttural level primal me out. Like I was like, no, no, not okay. And I mean, this is like, this is a startup that's actually like really fast, vastly growing and now has raised a ton of money. I'm not going to name who it is, but if you looked into it, you could find it, but it totally freaked me out. And like, we just were like, oh yeah, this is so cool. I'm an early adopter. I have like a robot VA, blah, blah, blah. No, God. Stay away. <laughs> but this is the lack of like 
sure, this is cool and interesting and look what we can do. But the question is not asked, should we be doing this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's another example that I think you might want to like is interesting to talk about on the podcast. So it has to do with horoscopes and astrology, right? So basically, Jaron Lanier is talking about how, you know, there's always been horoscopes. There's all this stuff's always existed. But it's, you know, it's been in the newspaper. And it's just like, you can read it. And like everyone who has the same month sees the same thing. And now there's the ability for apps, like for cloud-based astrology apps to feed you really particularized information. And so maybe it's, (laughs) he doesn't believe in it, right? Like you can tell in the book, he doesn't believe it, but maybe they're really looking at your birth chart and maybe they're really feeding you real information, but they have the ability by telling you what's happening for you this month. He says, let's say that instead of a paper newspaper, it's an online service. And let's say that the horoscope basically feeds you information about your health, your work ethic, your dating desirability or something else. And now all of a sudden, your horoscope can play into what news you see, whom you're introduced to as a potential date, what products you're offered. So based on your activity online and your social your interactions on social media, like there there is the capacity for that stuff to happen. Like it actually affect your life, right, in a real way. And I think that's the danger is that there are places where machines <laughs> that are made by real people who have their own agendas whether they're economic or whatever, political or whatever, like they have the ability to influence people in a way that is like unheard of. And I don't think we have evolved as a society, as a culture enough to understand what kind of laws and regulations we need to have, what kind of like psychological protections we need to have from this kind of stuff. We just don't know. I mean, it's it's terrifying. And the person very may very well be completely unsuspecting that this is happening. That's Or they might think like, oh, it's so cool that this astrology app is telling me like what foods to eat and where to get it and who to go on a date with or whatever. Like it's, oh, that's so cool. It's personalized for me. Like it's, I don't think that just, oh, telling people that this is happening is going to be a shock to the system. I think people are like, yeah, that's cool. It's optimized for me. I mean, we've come to expect this. Like there are vitamin services that like send you monthly little pill packs with like your exact vitamins that you need and, you know, in a packet and they like you take an online quiz. I'm this is like they're real apps. There are like two or three of these I've done. I've seen taken these little tests online. They're like filling this information about your age and your gender and your habits and your, you know, fatigue levels and your sleep sleep issues. And then they like will optimize a set of vitamins to come to you, right? Like there's this is normal. This is what we this is how we work as a society now. And so like it's just a step further to say like eat this food from this place, date this person, name your kid this. You know, like what else are we gonna, you know, let algorithms control in our lives? Mm -hmm. And what's the danger and what isn't the danger, right? I think though, Jenny, that a lot of people don't realize how much that is happening because I still hear in my world that people were like, and I look, looked at this website and then it appeared as an ad on my Facebook feed. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that that's easily done. Every company does that who's on Facebook. And so people are still like, like thinking that is freaky. And that to me is actually kind of normal. This stuff is absolutely terrifying. So I just think that people aren't aware as much as you think they are. But yeah, sure. I think there are a lot of people who aren't aware. But I also think 
that before we even have a conversation about what path we should take and what's right and what's wrong for us as humans, like these things are just happening and they're being implemented to the point of becoming normalized in our society. And it's a lot harder to roll something back once it's been normalized than it is to have a, a an honest discussion ahead of time where we're, we are weighing pros and cons. And so I think it's it's problematic. We okay. can move on to another issue hate, um, that has, has to do- your soul. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about one more economic dignity issue because it's so related to our own business, Sandy, and that has to do with paying for software. And I have not seen anyone else articulate this as well as Jaron Lanier. He's a genius at articulating why it's so important to pay for software and not to rely on free software to sort of run your life or your business. And he talks about how, you know, when the internet was founded, and he's one of these kind of founding people, The movement to make software free was really created out of an honest, positive desire to make it as open and as available to everyone as possible. But what happened is that the mistake was made that entrepreneurs would be better suited to define the future and to sort of internally regulate technology than to have government regulate, right? And so because of that, the freemium model took over and the way that companies, tech companies are monetized largely is by gathering data and manipulating data for people, right? In the form of advertising or whatever else. And so he happens to articulate an argument about this that's that's really powerful. That's something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast and we also agree with. And he talks about why this didn't work in great detail. So if you're interested in understanding more about why we've come to expect software as quote unquote free, I highly recommend that you read his economic dignity chapter. And then the other thing he talks about in this chapter that I think is really powerful is to talk about when he gives examples of when paid software really works well. And he's talking about there's this idea of peak TV where people consider Netflix and HBO in its current state to be quote unquote peak TV, where um, in the early days of taking TV and video onto the internet, there was this idea that like you should never have to pay for anything that like cable TV was the devil, cable TV was terrible, and we were all going to move to a society where entertainment would be free and freely available. But how in fact... This idea of having paid versions of things like Netflix and HBO have created peak TV where we have like basically what's considered to be the best entertainment programming ever created in history at an affordable price, but still a paid price. And he's saying, why can we not have peak social media or peak search where we as payers, as customers of these services are paying for what we want so that way our interests are majorly factoring into what gets created. And part of the reason that Netflix and HBO are so good is because people are willing to pay for what they want. So instead of getting a bunch of advertising and like kind of mediocre entertainment, you're getting really good entertainment with no advertising. Yeah, that's very interesting and 100% agree with that. Yeah. So, I mean, his ultimate way of like sort of concluding this is when social media companies are paid directly by users instead of by hidden third parties, then they will serve those users. It's so simple. So it's just like it is. It's simple. You know, like we serve our clients because they pay us. Like we don't have to, we're not beholden to anyone else. We're beholden to the people that pay us and that's how we exist as a company. And so we do whatever we need to do to keep those people happy and operational and satisfied and excited about using our software. And that's what works. 
Another example is Mighty Networks. We took our paid community out of Facebook groups and moved into Mighty Networks, which we pay for. But because of that, we have this quiet, beautifully designed space. Yeah, that we made ours. Yeah. That's ours. And it's much more efficient for us to get in there and for our students as well, I think. So that's another. And that was a tough one. Like Gina is basically trying to compete against Facebook, which is free and everybody's on it. But yet she sort of buys into all of this and has created something that she's charging for, but operates very much like uh, Facebook groups. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And she has a freemium model as well, but it doesn't have very many features. So yeah, I think that's right. And I think we're going, I hope like if if all goes well, what we're going to see from social media moving forward and from technology moving forward is more and more products that you have to pay for in order to use. And I just want to reiterate, we've said this on numerous podcasts, but I want to reiterate if something is free, you should really question whether you want to invest your time and energy and you know yourself into it or whether you want to put your profile onto it because it's not free. It's never free because someone needs to make money at, at the end of that, right? So absolutely. Just saying... Okay. And Sandy, the final argument that I wanted to talk about in this book, which I think is the most controversial, is argument 10, social media hates your soul. Now this, I think you're going to question me on quite a lot when we were talking about this earlier. You were like, wait, what? (laughs) Okay. Let's hear it. What's the argument? So essentially, and again, I'm like really paraphrasing his point of view here, but essentially the structure in which we have built our lives around technology is it's not like all logic. It's not all based on logic. Like there's a lot of kind of faith that goes on in the decisions that that we make and the decisions that tech companies make to operate. And he is essentially, Jaron is essentially equating some of this to organized religion. He's basically saying that if you fancy yourself an atheist or an agnostic, but you buy in to big tech, then you really need to second, you you know, you need to like think through that again, because you're really not an atheist or an agnostic or whatever else you are, because these tech companies have basic operating principles that are faith-based and they're not like traditional religion. So let me just like get into it a little bit better. So he says, not all questions can be addressed by evidence. So having faith about them is not a rejection of evidence. Religions at their best address the deepest, most important, and most tender questions that we can't approach scientifically, like the ultimate purpose of life, why existence exists, what consciousness is, what death is, and the nature of meeting. And so he is essentially saying, according to these companies and the ethos behind them, like Google and Facebook, the purpose of life is to optimize. And it's like Google's purpose is to organize the world's information and that that optimizing is a choice. Like there's no reason, there's no like scientific reason that we need to optimize information. And I think that's something like you have to really wrap your mind around, right? Like, is that really something is optimizing information, something that is worthwhile or not? Like there's no like actual scientific ethos like that says like this needs to happen like this is a a choice like it's a just like you would make another faith-based decision quote unquote like this is a choice that is not like not universally agreed upon so google in particular has made choices that affect a lot of people like a huge percentage of the world that are essentially relying on 
an ideal or kind of like an ethereal set of conclusions. And so, I mean, I think that this is quite controversial and I don't know how I feel about it, but I certainly think it's like food for thought. Like it's, it's like a philosophy, like university lecture, right? It's worth really wrapping your mind around and thinking about like, there are so many things that we take for granted and take as gospel that are not necessarily something that we should take for granted. So this idea that information needs to be optimized. Do we really need to be doing that? Is that really worth is that really worth like at the expense of all of our privacy and, you know, all of these other costs that come from using these tools? I just Googled the definition of religion and it's the first one that came up here is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power. <laughs> so right? It's like that could be Google. Right. Yeah, right. no, totally. And he says this is not just metaphysics, but metaphysical imperialism. If you buy into any of this stuff explicitly or just through practice, you cannot even call yourself an atheist or agnostic. You are a convert. So he's also gets into AI and stuff. And he's basically says that like one of the things that engineers who work at these companies do, like their priority isn't serving present day humans. It's building artificial intelligences that he believes will inherit the earth. So like constant surveillance and behavior modification is not serving us. It's not serving the actual people interacting with the technologies every day. So who is it serving? So like he basically also says that like publicly these big tech companies have committed to creating an extravagant AI race, like quote unquote, a artificial intelligence race of beings that they prioritize above anything else. So that's just like, yeah, it's like, it's like the arms race of this generation, right? And he's saying it's the, the singularity of this religion is the tech industry's answer to the evangelical Christian rapture. Like he said, the weirdness is normalized when customers who are often techies themselves accept AI as a coherent and legitimate concept and make spending decisions based on it. So I'll just leave it at that. Like this is getting a little heavy for this podcast, but it's like seriously worth considering. Can you just do one more thing, Jenny? Could you explain? I think the context of this book, it'd be helpful to know who he, Jaron Lanyard is mm -hmm. or was or what he did. Oh, he is. Yeah. So he's a scientist and a programmer, and he's one of the creators. Like, he's considered to be one of the creators of the internet. He's like kind of a fixture in Silicon Valley. He had a startup in the 1980s called VPL Research that created some of the first commercial virtual reality products. He introduced the idea of avatars and multi-person virtual worlds and experiences. He has a bunch of other books out like Who Owns the Future and You Are Not a Gadget. So, I mean, he's kind of a big time thinker in the tech space. Like he's not this outsider or philosopher or professor critiquing the tech space. Like he's an insider and he's writing this book as someone who's been in kind of the internet world since its inception and who is highly critical of it now. Um, he still believes in the promise and power of technology, but he thinks that it's being abused and he he fundamentally believes in quitting social media or not using it. And he has no accounts. No accounts. Yeah. And None. he includes Google in that too. Like it's not just like Facebook and Twitter. Right, the he, actual social. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He includes Google as well. So I, I don't know. I mean, to me, this is like, you know, this kind of dystopian stuff is fascinating to me. Like obviously I devoted most of my life until starting Namastream to dealing with climate change. And to me, this is just the same kind of stuff. Like it's like, hey guys, knock, knock. Hey guys, look what we're doing. <laughs> look what we're doing to the people in the world. And 
Like maybe we should be paying attention. And humans are by definition terrible at thinking long term about anything. Like this is one of the problems with human beings. Like our our minds don't process information about like long term decisions very well. Like we're we actually can't do that. And so whenever there are situations like this where we're we're contributing to I think something that's going to turn into a medium to long-term catastrophe for the human species we're, we have a really hard time seeing that or feeling anything about it or thinking about it wrapping our mind same thing with climate change right so until it's real for us until we're experiencing the negative impact of it it's really hard to understand it yeah i believe he says somewhere that he truly believes that this will be the end of mankind if we don't sort this out and when i read that i'm like ah oh, come on really you know but and so it this is exactly what you're talking about i'll just brush it off like to some you know extremist point of view but i'm glad we had this chat jenny and thank you for explaining it cuz you read the book and i didn't super interesting i'd love to hear what the listeners think if they're aware of this if they're worried about it if they agree or not like i think it's it's a fascinating conversation yeah and i just want to bring it back home now that we've had kind of this like extreme existential conversation about tech and social media. Just this other article that I was referencing at the beginning of the podcast, which is a Medium article called The Cognition Crisis from July 9th by Adam Gasly. And its its subtitle is Anxiety, Depression, ADHD, Dementia. The human brain is in trouble. Technology is a cause and a solution. So this article is a little bit more hopeful. As you can imagine, I'm not going to, like this podcast is already quite long, so I'm not going to go into it in great detail. But there there's some hopeful stuff in here. But there's also short-term impacts of technology, right, that we don't talk about, I think, enough, especially as they relate to children. And so I just want to, uh, highlight one section of this article to, and sort of wrap up this conversation with it. In this article, it's obviously talking about how using screens, like engaging in technology is causing all these sort of like mental health issues, right? And this author says, a cognition crisis is not defined by a lack of information, knowledge, or skills. We have done a fine job in, accum- in accumulating those and passing them along across millennia. Rather, this is a crisis at the core of what makes us human, the dynamic interplay between our brain and our environment, the ever-present cycle between how we perceive our surroundings, integrate this information and act upon it. And so again, I think this is just calling out to us to sort of like step away from our screens, to start to really relate to our environment in a real way, to our surroundings, to the people in our actual lives and communities, because that's essentially the antidote to some of these problems. And I'll obviously include the link to this article in the show notes, but it's not just like the long-term future of robots taking over the earth. It's the problem. Like it's actually our own short and medium term mental health that's at stake um, when engaging with these technologies. And so there are real steps we can take in our everyday lives to protect us and insulate us from some of these immediate impacts. Wow. That's a lot. (laughs) A lot. It's heavy. All right. Let's wrap it up. Joy and Hustle, you've got the joy this week. Yeah, I want to talk about the joy. So this is something that's very special to me. Um, Mary Robinson, who has been a mentor and a hero to me, she was the first female president of Ireland and a high commissioner for human rights at the UN um, and someone who I had the pleasure of working with in my previous career. She has just launched a new feminist podcast about climate change. She's co-hosting it with comedian Maeve Higgins, and it looks amazing. And I think it's 
so funny that this like stately woman who's like a queen to me and this like heroic figure in global politics is now starting a podcast with a comedian and they're going to be highlighting a bunch of grassroots climate change activists, which is amazing and having these conversations. And I can't even imagine like it's going to be so cool. And so I, of course, will link to that in the show notes. And it's just like it also it's cool because it's podcast. It's cool because it's Mary Robinson. It's cool because there's a comedian involved. I just think it's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Okay. And The Hustle, of course, is the actual physical book by Jaron Lanier. Yeah. 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. We will, of course, link to it in the show notes. Thanks, everyone. We will be back next time with a lighter episode for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start, to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba slash teacher to sign up. It's totally free. Thank you for listening to the Soulful MBA podcast.